Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 418. So we're in the second week of the month of Elul. Today was the 15th of Elul. And we will actually begin with that. And then this week is Chayel, the 18th of Elul. And many other topics, timely topics and timeless topics to address. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayesar Altais, Yekusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todras ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altais. So, as I said, today is the 15th of El, is the 125th anniversary of the establishment of the Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim Labavich in the year Tofresh Nazayan, 1897. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, established a yeshiva which stands till this day and has only grown both in numbers and in stature and in influence. And he established it. And uh, this is not a small event. So let's address that, especially being that it's the 125th anniversary and above all its relevance to our lives today. Later this week, a few days from now, is Chayel, the 18th of El, which is the birthday of the Shnei Ma'eris Agdeil and the two great luminaries, the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Azam of the Adi, the founder of Chassidus Haklolis, Chassidus in general, and the founder of Chassidus Chabad, respectively. So we will talk about that as well. It's also 9-11. Today is September 11th. And we, so we will address that, as well as I said, other timely and timeless topics. We are in the month of El, and the last weeks we've been talking about the relevance of that, that last month of the year, the preparation for the new year, and especially in context of our personal growth and our personal accountability. So it's quite fitting that the Rebbe Rashab chose this month to be the one that when he would establish the Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim. But a little background first. To answer the first most important question, what was the significance of establishing Temchet Mim? So the Rebbe Rashab says that it wasn't an easy decision for him to make. Because here, he was the fifth Chabad Rebbe, as I mentioned. That means four Rebbes before him. The Rebbe Marash, his father, his grandfather, Samuel Sadiq, his great-grandfather, the Rebbe Mitla Rebbe, and his great-great-grandfather. The Alter Rebbe did not found the yeshiv. They had students and they had Chadorim, the Alter Rebbe had, and they definitely taught. But a yeshiva, the students that were studying yeshivas went to different yeshivas. So the Rebbe Rashab says that's a gewalgut. He wandered, so to speak, not wandered. It means he spent time at the oilim, at the oil of his, of his father and his grandfather, assuming also of the Alter Rebbe and the Mittler Rebbe, before he made this decision, for years, I think it says 10 years or 15 years, before he made this decision. Because since they didn't establish one, how is he have, does, they have, does he have the, the right to do so, so to speak? Obviously he's a Rebbe, but still. He looked at them as his Rebbe, and they were his Rebbe. And indeed, he actually wrote an entire Kuntas Eitz Achaim to explain the purpose of this Moisid, of this, this, of this uh, uh, new yeshiva. It makes it clear there were enough yeshivas that were teaching Torah in a full, compa- in an excellent way and teaching Yiddish Shemayim. 
reverence and respect of God and Torah and mitzvahs. So it wasn't because he felt there was a lack. But yet, still, he saw something more that was needed more than just that. When I say just that, it's not a just, but it needed more. He wanted to establish soldiers. In a talk that he delivered three years, uh, four years later, in Tafri Samachalov, Simchustena, Kola Yitzel Machamas Beis David, he spelled it out even more. That, that the days are coming, he said. And this was open prophecy, as the Rebbe pointed out a number of times. Days are coming. Remember, this is the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, when there will be great challenges out there. Those that oppose God and those that oppose Torah Mitzvahs. Or those that oppose Torah, that don't oppose Torah, but they oppose God and Mashiach. And we need to have proactive, I'm paraphrasing, proactive soldiers who are going to fight the spiritual war out there. So though at the time it wasn't exactly practical to do that in the fullest sense of the word, because they were living in Russia, the Rebbe Rashab and the yeshivas were established there. America was a far place, far away. But in time we see now, when you look back, you can see the prescience, you can see the foresight of the Rebbe Rashab because today, essentially, all of Chabad, every shliach, every shlucha, is a product of this yeshiva and its, and its extensions. So the yeshiva was more than just teaching people Torah and mitzvahs and Yerushalayim. As critical as that is, that's the foundation of everything. But also to take it a step further, to feel responsibility for those around us. And with World War I and World War II and the up, great upheavals that came with that, this became a lifesaver. So the yeshiva was actually coming to actually save and preserve Yiddishkeit and Judaism. And especially with the emphasis of primisa teda, not just learning the halacha, the laws of teda. And again, when I say just, I don't mean it in a minimalistic way. I mean to say, in addition to that, to learn the neshama of teda, which is so critical and making it be something that's, that has this dynamic filled with vitality and passion. And that's what the purpose of the yeshiva was. So as we honor and celebrate 125 years, it's critical to remember this. This is a responsibility that we all have. Whether it's directly sending our children to yeshiva's and again, all its extensions and by different names, both in America or all across the world, both for, stu- for boys, for, for girls, but also the principle, the spirit of it, the spirit of Temchet Mimim is to create proactive Jews, proactive individuals who will feel the responsibility to do whatever it takes to inspire and to awaken and ignite the souls in every person they meet. And that's why they're also referred to Neres Lahayr, the students of the yeshiva, Neres Lahayr. Flames, candles that illuminate. Every person has a Neir Hashem Nishma Sadam, a flame, which is the soul of God. The soul of a human being is the flame of God. But the flame needs to be fanned. It needs to be brought alive. It needs to manifest in our faculties and in our garments and all our behavior and in our speech and in our thoughts. Flames illuminate. And how do we illuminate through Ner Mitzvah V'Tayra Er, the candle of Mitzvah and the fire and the light of Tayra. And that pierces and dispels 
the darkness around us, as we see the power of light, and ultimately transforms this dark world, this materialistic world, into a home for God. So yeshiva teaches students, teda, mitzvahs, yirushamayim, avas Hashem, yirush Hashem. But then there's also what we do with that. Not just to take care of our own selves and our families, but also with every person we come in contact. And also with ourselves, when you do it with that primius, our teda, with the passion and the vitality that the soul of teda adds, which is more than just the mechanical and behavioral aspect of Judaism, but with that inner fervor and passion, that makes it something that will perpetuate as we see when people do something with passion, what kind of, what kind of results we have from that. So that briefly is the significance of this day. So let's address a few questions that came in about this. What was the Rebbe Rashab's goal when he created Temchet Mim, and did he succeed with his goal? Well, look at the results. At the time, when you're talking about 1897, as I said, it was Tsarist Russia. A little while later would be the Russian Revolution. So there's no question, though the yeshiva was successful immediately, but its impact wasn't felt till much later. So the impact was felt in individuals because the people who came out of the yeshiva, some of them actually made it to the United States even. But not just the United States, in Europe, in Russia. These, these individuals that so-called graduated from Temchet Mimim became the pillars immediately then of Mesidus Nefesh. I'll just example, I'll use the example of my own grandfather, my namesake. He went to Temchet Mimim. He arrived there approximately I would say probably 1918, 1919, in Rostov when he met the Rebbe Rashab. And he became one of the 10, that the, the 10 students that the Friedrich Rebbe gathered together and made a Christus Bris, a vow, a covenant, that to their last drop of blood, they would do whatever is possible to preserve Judaism. We're talking about after the Russian Revolution, when they went from the frying pan into the fire, the communists, especially the Jewish communists, were doing everything possible to eradicate, God forbid, Judaism, to do whatever is possible to preserve it. So right there you see the result, that the goal being met. But this only expanded. At that time, it was still limited in that part of the world. Then when the Friedrich Rebbe left Russia in the late 20s, 1928, and he came to Warsaw, and to Europe, the yeshivas began to expand. And then it began to expand further in Europe, in the United States. And you look today, every Chabad Chosid, every Chabad Shliach and Shlucha, every Chabad emissary and ambassador, formal or not formal, however you define it, is a product of this yeshiva system. So was this goal met? Look around the world. You have thousands of Chabad centers, Chabad houses, in every part of, of every part of the world, in every country, in every far-flung community, with young men and women going out there and building schools and synagogues and mikvahs and communities, and have changed the landscape of the Jewish world, and I would say even beyond the Jewish world, and it only continues to thrive and grow. Now, why did that happen? Why did it explode afterwards? The reasons are obvious with the upheavals of the world wars 
and all the running from one place to the next, it was hard to really build it up in the fullest sense of the word. But after, 19, after 1945 and 1950, when the Rebbe assumed leadership, then it began to really blossom and produce thousands and thousands and continues to produce. So when people want to know what the secret is, the secret is because this is the yeshiva that embodies and personifies the teachings of the Rabbeim, which bring together Nigla the Teda and Primiasa Teda, the inner and the outer dimensions of Teda, the body of Teda and the soul of Teda, in one formula, in one passionate blueprint of how to transform your life and the world around you, aligning it with God's will and God's mission, teaching people why they're here and how to, through Teda Mitzvahs, to actualize their current calling and their purpose of existence. And by, in turn, to transform this world with Teda Mitzvahs, with the light of Teda Mitzvahs, with the light of Chesed, Tzedek, and Yeshad, of virtue and justice and charity and kindness and generosity. That's what this yeshiva was set out to do. And yes, his goals have been met and continue to be met and only growing in that sense. I was in Lubavitch Yeshiva throughout my life, but I struggle with, with what I'm supposed to stand for. Can you provide some clarification on why I wasn't able to find it in Yeshiva? Well, what you stand for is the Neir Lahoyer. In life, you have two choices. You have many choices, but I would categorize them in two choices. Are you going to be reactive or proactive? Are you going to be influenced or will you be an influencer? We were sent to this world with an ashama, with a soul, with a power of that soul, empowered to, with our unique skills, to transform the environment around us. That is the essence of Atomim. Atomim was the name given to the students that went to Temchet Mim. Atomim means complete, wholesome. It also refers to Atomim as in all parts of the Torah. Now, whether the yeshiva always accomplished it is already a matter of a human issue. Depends the teachers you had. It depends on the environment. But this was the purpose of the yeshiva. I'm not going to get into discussing now is every yeshiva living up to its greatest potential. Obviously, everyone has their challenges. But our job is to live up to that standard. And the Rebbe Rashab set the standard. So, it's sad to hear that you don't know what you stand for, but what you stand for in the words of the Rebbe so many times, he says, Atomim, what kind, of, what, kind of, what kind of title that is? What kind of power that is? I remember reading, I, wasn't, I was still not born yet, but reading from the talks of the Rebbe when he speaks about the Tmimim, especially in the early years, in the early 50s. I'll just read to you one, one quote where the Rebbe says the following. The Rebbe says that when a person went to Temchet Bim, it's something that's permanent, that remains with that person the rest of their entire lives. But here's the key thing I want to say. It says like this, that Atomim has this chus, the merit, To be a ner 
to be given the power by the Rabbeim to be illuminating flame. Now the truth is every Jew is given that power by God. But here you have the additional strength of yeshiva. That's what you stand for. That wherever you go, you have the ability to impact people. So besides the responsibility, there's also the gift that you're given all this strength and you have all this tremendous potential. And that the students of the yeshiva will actually be the ones that lead the way to bring the Geula Amitiz Vashlema. In the mid-80s, I believe it was Tav Shemem Hay, 1985. And the Rebbe said then that he came back, it was Friday, and he thought that 770 would be going Chadaram, which means like a, a, a tremendous ruckus, positive one would be made because it was the, the day of the establishment of the yeshiva. And he said it was all quiet. Shashtil, the Rebbe said. So you see from these statements and from these expressions what kind of significance this is. Often to appreciate something, you have to look at what would be without it, God forbid. Without it, we would not have an active, we'll call it, training ground of taking chsidus and turning it into a viable system. If people were learning chsidus randomly on their own, you didn't have a yeshiva environment, you would not have that creation of an entire mindset. Like it is when you're dealing with a full yeshiva dedicated to that, creates an attitude from the youngest of age to understand why we're here. There are 8 billion people on this planet. How many people can say or know that they that know even that they have a mission, let alone what that mission is? And here we are told what that mission is. That's what Tem Chitmim is. So I don't have enough words to describe you're looking for the words, but this is the schus you have and everyone that went to a yeshiva like this. And again, whether yeshivas lived up to it, that's their challenge, to make sure they do. But the mandate is there, and above all, even if it's not perfect, still the tools were given. And I don't know if a stronger thing in life is to know why you're here and feel that strength and confidence that you Uniquely you, you can do something about the situation in the world and be not part of the problem, but part of the solution. What are some of the advantages of being a student of Temchet Mimim? Another person writes, we are taught that the Rebbe Rasha personally handpicked all the students of Temchet Mimim and even looked into the future and picked all the souls that would be students in future years. So what are some of the advantages of being a student of Temchet Mimim? Well, I think I spelled some of them out. And um, we should never underestimate, as I said, in contrast to someone that doesn't have that sense of purpose. Not that everyone has a purpose, but the sense of purpose, I think, is the greatest strength. What can I say? But I wouldn't put it in terms, in any arrogant terms, God forbid, or any terms of superiority. It's just an opportunity. When you're given an opportunity like that. Speaking on my own, on a personal level, when I was a teenager, I mean, to use the words, I would say that I was probably a rebel without a cause. And then when I discovered the cause, and it was through the yeshiva, it was through the rebbe, and through what I learned around me, especially through chassidus, it changes everything. I would not be the person I am today. I wouldn't be doing this. 
I'm just using myself as an example. But every person has that opportunity and ability and potential. And just like we talk about life coaches and mentors, what do they do? They help you to discover your potential. That's what is extraordinary and what is unique. Advantages of a student of Temchet to help us actualize our potential and fulfilling the purpose of why we're here. Namely, to bring, as I said, the light of God, the light of Torah, the light of mitzvahs, of chassidus, to every person we meet. And the mere fact that someone sees you, you become this living example, like a walking menorah, walking source of light and inspiration and warmth. You ask most people today, they meet somebody new, I don't know how, who this is, what they want from me, their defenses are up. But imagine being a person that people say, I'd love to meet this person because every time I meet that person, I feel encouraged, I feel empowered, I feel uplifted, I feel optimistic. This is what a walking Temchit Mim product should look like. And being a person, and to be a person like that, what kind of schus, what kind of merit that is. What are some of the spiritual and physical responsibilities of a Temchit Mim student? And what energies are given to those students to empower them to accomplish their mission? I believe that we address that. But I'm just reading it in context of the questions that came this way. And I think it covered more or less this uh, significance to some extent. Obviously, to do justice, something of this can take hours and hours. Long fabrengens were held by the Rebbe and by the Rabbeim on this topic. But now that we're standing 125 years today from that day when the yeshiva was established, to look back over the last 125 years, the most momentous, you can say, the most radical, most dramatic years in Jewish history, both in the negative of the darkness and the destruction that we experienced, but also in the Renaissance and the opportunities, is, is something to behold. That here we are in the year 2022, the end of the year, Tov Shem Pei Beis, 125 years. The odds that we would have made it, but we never went by odds, the Jewish people. And here we are talking about it with thousands again of young men and women all over, not only young, but also young and old, that carry this banner and, and fulfill this mandate. It's quite something awesome to appreciate, but above all, to realize that we still have much work to do. That's the real challenge, to continue the work and perpetuate the work and make sure that we reach every corner of the earth because that was the ultimate goal. To fill the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And divine knowledge means not just knowledge, not just academic information and data, but divine knowledge means a knowledge that, that it permeates and saturates a person with the confidence and the courage and the direction and guidance to bring beauty to this world. That's why the first half of the verse says, There will no longer be evil and destruction on my entire holy mountain and the entire world because the world will be filled with divine knowledge when we have that knowledge, which isn't, again, just knowledge. It's knowledge that affects and refines the human being. That is the secret to all the solutions of all our problems. So our work is cut out for us. And with 125 years behind us, we like midges that stand on the shoulders of giants with so much more work to be done, but empowered knowing that it could be done. Because if, that, if so much could have been achieved after all those challenges, and we're talking about the challenges again of World War I, 
and World War II and the Holocaust and all that we lost and all the upheavals and all the transmigrations, literally of a Jewish nation being uprooted from its homes for a thousand years or more in Europe and Eastern Europe and rebuilding and we see the Renaissance that we see today all over the world, including in Israel. So it only tells us that could be done under those circumstances, how much we can do now when we have really all the opportunities before us. And thank God, without any resistance or impediments outside of ourselves, except our own apathy or our own um, uh, laziness. So may we use this day properly, especially in the month of El, which leads me straight to Chayel, which was a continuation. And again, it was probably planned that way because Chayel, the 15th of El is when it was established. Chayel was when they began to study in the yeshiva. And Chayel, as I mentioned, is the birthday of the Shnei HaMa'iris HaGdelim of the, of the, of the Baal Shem Tov in the year Nachas, Tov Nun Ches. And the Alter Rebbe in the year Kohos, Tov Kuf Hei, both on this day of the 18th of El. Chai means Chayes, the vitality as the Rabbeim say, it adds vitality in El. Since El is a month of Cheshbon, accountability for the previous year, and Achon, a preparation for the next, in El itself, Chai El adds a whole other dimension, just as the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe did. But they added. What did they add? God forbid there's no additions in Teda. Everything was given a Matan Teda. But they revealed the inner dimension that was always there. The Nisham of Teda was always there, but there came a time where it had to be revealed to everyone. There was a time when the Jewish people lived in insulated and immunized environments. And you picked up reverence and love of God just from the smell of the chicken soup in your grandmother's kitchen. But as the walls came down, the ghetto walls came down, and as the Jewish people began to mingle more with the secular world, much more was needed to counteract the forces. And thus, one of the reasons that Primisatera began to be revealed, as Darizal already said, it's a mitzvah to reveal this part of the Tera, this wisdom. In the words of the Zayar, that in the year Tafresh, which is equivalent to 1840, there would be an explosion, there'd be a Explosion of knowledge, both up, uh, higher knowledge and lower knowledge, which is understood to be primis atere and technology and science, the lower knowledge, all in preparation to the Gula Mitzvah Vashles as a taste of it, like on Friday, the sixth millennium, like it corresponds to Friday when you taste the foods of Shabbos of the Gula, but also to counter the additional darkness in the world, the secularization of the world, the dichotomies between science and faith, as some feel as our dichotomies, and to recognize the divine within everything. So though this was always the purpose from the day one, but as the challenges grew, need more resources. So though Primis Atere was always known by, by individuals, became something that the Baal Shem began to teach, and as, as well as the Alter Rebbe developing it into a system called Chabad, a full comprehensive blueprint for life, of how to spiritualize the material world and how to turn it into a dira a home for the divine. 
So what is the significance of the Bashamt of the Alter Rebbe both being born on the 18th of Elul? So if Elul captures the entire year's activities, because it's like the summation of the entire year and the preparation for the next year, what are the activities of the year based on a Torah model? Torah mitzvahs, or the three pillars of Torah, Vedic, Milz, Chasadim, all intended to, in the acronym of El, Anilu Deidi Vedeidi Li, I am to my beloved and my beloved to me. As already has been documented, the different acronyms of the month as they connect to the pillars of what Judaism is all about, Torah is all about. So how appropriate is it then that on the 18th of El, Chayis, Chay, the 18th, a vitality within all this work was introduced by the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. As the Rabbim tell us, the Baal Shem Tov taught how every person can serve and connect to God. And the Alter Rebbe taught us how every person can serve and connect. The, give, the example given by the Friedrich Rebbe, I believe it's based on previous Rabbim, is like a ladder, that the Baal Shem Tov provided us a ladder between earth and heaven, and the Alter Rebbe taught us how to climb the ladder. And what does this ladder consist of? So there are five, you could say, five key principles that the Baal Shem Tov taught. Many more, but five central ones. The soul, the appreciation of a person's neshama, that every person's neshama is intact, the soul is intact. And whether that person has knowledge or had the opportunities, that soul is always pure. The second point, Avis Yisrael, unconditional love to everyone. The third point, to serve God with joy. The fourth, that everything is divine providence. And from everything we see in here, we take a lesson for, for, for our lives, in Avedis Hashem, in serving God. And finally, the perpetual creation. Haisavaz B'chal as the Alter Rebbe brings the beginning of Sha'ar Yechud V'amunu, Pirash HaBal Shem Tev, Hashem Dvarchem Nitzu B'Shamayim, that every moment existence is renewed by the pulsating energy from God's will and God's desire and God's words. Now if you think of it, all these principles firstly were here from the beginning of time. This is the basics of Torah. Of Torah. But, the, but so what the Baal Shem Tov come to innovate? Not to tell us, Havis Yisrael is a mitzvah in the Torah, Havtarecha Kamecha, Zekhal Godel Beter, Rabbi Akiva says. But it, the emphasis, the emphasis on it, and as I said with the Alter Rebbe, teaching us how. There was a group, the Friedrich Rebbe was once in Berlin, and there was a group of Orthodox rabbis. In Germany, there were a long history of very strong Yiddishkeit. So they came to visit a delegation of the rabbis from uh, Germany, came to visit the Friedrich Rebbe, and they met in the lobby of the hotel. It's a beautiful hotel. And one of the questions they asked him is, what did Chassidus come to contribute? Here we are, we're a community of over a thousand years old. Devout, committed. And we don't have Chassidus. What did Chassidus come to add? And the Friedrich Rebbe pointed to the pillars. They were marble, these exquisite marble pillars in the hotel lobby. He said, what do you see? And they described what they saw, these massive pillars. They were very beautiful and elegant looking. Okay. Then he stood up and they followed him. He went over to one of the pillars and took a lamp and, point, and put it closely to the pillar and said, what do you see now? So they say, now we see the intricate flowers and designs that are engraved in the marble. 
And they described that in detail. He said, why didn't you say that before? They said, from a distance. We only saw the marble pillars. When you stand close and there's a light shining, then you can see the details. So he said, that's what he said, is that it didn't come to add anything new. It came to shine the light on the flowers of Yiddishkeit that were always here. And those flowers, as I just described, soul, Avis Yisrael, serving with joy, again, is a mitzvah, but the emphasis on that, seeing in everything the divine hand, divine providence, and learning lessons from it in our serving of God, and perpetual creation, that God's creation of the world every moment anew. Again, all principles that were there, but now the light is shining on it. And what's the point behind it all? That there's a soul within existence. As the Alter Rebbe explains, how? How do you love a person, even if you may not like the person on the, on the surface level? Because you contemplate on their neshama, a piece of godliness, creating the divine image. So even though some things may not look the way you like it, but you see what's the main thing of a person, like the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 32 in Tanya, that the spirit is the primary force, not the body. Same thing is how you get to joy, by recognizing the soul within things. Ostensibly, something may look like an event that is not so joyful or joyous. But when you understand that you are connected to God and that you have a purpose in this world, so everything gets infused with a deeper way of looking at things and therefore there's a joy involved in that. And the same thing in every detail of our lives, recognizing that God creates it anew and therefore also the divine providence within every detail, even when a leaf is turning in the wind. So number one, understanding everything is part of a grand plan and grand design. Every detail in your life is part of your narrative. But also taking, deriving lessons from it. So therefore that detail is relevant. You can learn from it. Not just the big events, every detail. So all this is part of the contributions of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. Again, this is trying to sum up the entire body of Chassidus in brief, but just to make it a little more practical of how each of us can implement it. On this day of Chayel, the 18th of El, the birthday of these two great luminaries. Would it be fair to, since, the, since we view the month of El as a month of God's mercy and compassion, and 18 represents Chai for life, would it be fair to say that Chayel is the most important day in El, and it gives life force to the entire month? Most important day is a strong statement. I wouldn't say that unless the Rabbein themselves say it. I would say it's an important day. But it gives life force to the entire month of El. That's specific. Chayel, yes, it gives Chayes. And I explained the reason why, because El is about serving, about connecting, about preparing for the new year, and accountability for the past year. And in that itself, there's a vitality. Chayel is also, 12 days from Chayel comes Rosh Hashanah. So it says in the Sichas as well, that each of the 12 days after El, after Chayel, starting Chayel, correspond to the 12 months of the year, with Chayel corresponding to the Tishrei of last year, accounting for that, and the 19th of El for Cheshvan, and so on, until we reach Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah for El, the Elul of this past year, which is this month.
And much, much more has been said about it. But yes, it's the vitality. And when you learn Primi Satera, when you learn Chesidus, from both from the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe, and all the Rabbeim, their, their successors, the Magid, who was the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, and the Alter Rebbe's successors, the Mitle Rebbe, the Samach Tzedek, Reb Marash, the Reb Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe, when you learn Chesidus, it teaches you the Neshama of what El is all about, of how we have an opportunity Melech Basada, the king in the field, to connect in unprecedented ways and to ask for everything we need because the channels are open. Can you explain what the Chiddush of the Bashant and the Alter Rebbe and how they relate to each other and how they differed? Also, what is the difference between Chabad and other types of Chiddush and who is more true to the Bashant? Thank you. Well, briefly, the commonality is both is Chiddush. What is chassidus? As the Rebbe explains, Yechidah Shabbanefesh is the inner part of the soul, but the innermost part, which adds that dimension and reveals the inner dimension. So you learn something, the laws of Shabbos, or the laws of Tzitzis, or the laws of Rosh Hashanah, for that matter. A Shefer. Chassidus, so there you learn the technical part of it, why we do it, what it commemorates, the detailed laws of how to blow Shefer, and what a shafer is, and what is kosher to be used for a shafer, and so on. Chassidus will explain the neshama part of it. How it relates to you and your personal life. How it helps you connect to God. What the deeper meaning of the sounds of the shafer are. So that's something in common between the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe. The Baal Shem Tev wrote, spoke in the Kudus, in points. The Alter Rebbe developed a whole system called Chabad. So it's a comprehensive system, a system that's a, 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 a blueprint that you can use. Now, different students of the Baal Shem Tov, each, not a, not a Pashti, each one had their way of interpreting, and they're all legitimate. No one's here suggesting otherwise. However, there were those that questioned whether the Alter Rebbe had some way wandered away, God forbid, from the Baal Shem Tov's approach. So we know that... Um, in the, in the approbation, Askoma Tatanya. So he says there clearly, which indicates that now Yisrael, the Balshamtav, is Yismach, rejoices to emphasize that the Altarab actually actualized and is true to the spirit of the Balshamtav's teachings. He, he, Teresa Balshamtav, says the Rebbe Rashab. And when you learn it properly, you realize that. That though the Baal Shem Tov was emphasizing the spark within each person, but it wasn't just that, it was also to turn that into a whole viable, a whole system of how we connect to God through our minds and our hearts and transform ourselves. So Chabad, as some of the students of the Magid said, that the, Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe, the Litvak, took the essence, the essence of Chassidus. So again, all the students of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid carry those teachings. Different emphasis. But Chabad, equally at least, if not more so, captured the essence of it, of taking the Nekudas Ha'amunah, the pure mysterious nefesh of a soul. But that's not just enough to have the etzem, the essence that the Baal Shem Tov taught, but also to bring it into the Giluim, into the manifestation and expression 
in our thought, speech, action, which is what Tanya does and the whole system of Chassidus Chabad does. Why are there no chidushim on Shas from the Baal Shem Tov? Wouldn't it make sense that someone who was so great and changed the course of Judaism to have been a great Torah scholar and to have published many books about Torah that show that his new derech is rooted in traditional Judaism? It is very interesting that there are very few signs as to the Baal Shem Tov knowledge of Torah. Why is that? So firstly, this is somewhat based on the myths that some spread for different reasons to disparage chassidus and chassidim. But as the Rebbe points out, look at the students of the Baal Shem Tov and of the Magid. They were some of the greatest scholars of their time. A scholar is not drawn to someone who's not a scholar. They may respect every Jew for who they are. So that's first of all. The fact that the Baal Shem Tov revealed, revealed, you have to also remember that till he was 36, no one even knew that he existed. Because at that point, it was meant to be a secret. It was from the tzaddikim to start him. So there are many such tzaddikim, 36 in every generation, who are great scholars, but when you look at them, you may not see it. That was the way he was meant to be. Why is that the re- one of the reasons for that? Because these are like the pillars, the, 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 the so-called keepers of the flame. That are like the foundations of a building. You don't always see their strengths. Number one, it could cause... It, it's, it's to protect them and people because when people know their greatness, you see what happened. Our enemies begin to attack them, want to debate them, want to destroy them because they see their power. So it's important that they remain sometimes completely anonymous. In addition, maybe the revelations that they have to offer are so powerful that, as Chassidus explains, the most powerful energies are concealed. Then when the Bashanta was told to reveal himself, that was as enough for what the purpose of what he came for. What was he doing in the earlier years? He was a teacher's helper. Not even a teacher, a teacher's helper. You looked at him, you'd think he's like a bus driver. He's walking the children to school, the equivalent of. But he then, in that he was teaching them the essence of what, what life is all about. Encouraging them to make a bracha, to say Baruch Hashem, to say thank you Hashem, etc. When he was finally told to reveal himself, Remember, there was a purpose. Just like we spoke before about Temchet Bim, the Rebbe Rashab said it didn't come to, we, don't, we have enough yeshivas that teach Torah. It's not just for learning Torah. It's also for learning Torah, obviously. Yeshiva is learning Torah and mitzvahs, and most of the seder of yeshiva in the Temchet Bim is learning Gemara and Nigla and Halacha and so on. But there's an additional component. The Baal Shem Tov's focus was to awaken, like it says, his name is Yisrael, that when someone's in a comatose state, you call their name. The name of Kali Yisrael is Yisrael. That was like a comatose spiritual state. So Yisrael came to awaken the slumber. There was a lot of Torah. There was a lot of commitment. But even though we didn't yet see the beginnings of assimilation, it was also the time when assimilation was beginning to impact the Jewish people and would only get worse because they needed the awakening of the soul, the spirit. It's not just the mechanics of Judaism, but the spirit and the soul of Judaism. That's what the Baal Shem Tov came to teach. So his focus was on that. His students understood in his short teachings the brilliance. It deserves its own study, the scholarship of the Baal Shem Tov, his Talmudic scholarship that you can see in his Hasidic scholarship. 
but he spoke very briefly, didn't write, and in it is like concentrated brilliance that the Magid, and especially the Alter Rebbe, developed into a whole system. And when you're studying, you go back to the Bashamta, you can see it, especially when you look at the Tzemach Sedek, how he grounds and connects everything to all the Talmud and to all the Midrashim, then you can learn to appreciate the Baal in a far deeper way. So there's no such thing as Primus Atel without Nigel Atel. The question is what the emphasis was. This is how I would explain and answer this question. And now our job, or the Rabbeim did this, and our job is to take what we've learned and show, go back to Gemara, go back to Halach, go back to Nigla, to Shas, and show how Primus Atele not just adds a whole dimension of appreciating, but even can add an understanding of the Nigla itself. In the, in, his, uh, the, in the later years, the Rebbe was Magi, he edited all the Sikhs that he delivered on, on Yutas Kisil was accustomed to be Messiah Shas. So the Rebbe said, what's the connection between Yutas Kisil, the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, with Shas? And he goes through all the different reasons, all the ways, I should say, how Chassidus enhanced and added a dimension to Nigla Deteira and Shas. So it's Kedai to look there, it's worthwhile looking there, where he explains how it doesn't just add a vitality and a shama and passion, and Avedis Hashem and serving God with Shas, but actually adds an understanding in Gemara. But again, with time being limited, you have to focus, the Basham to focus on awakening when you see people in a comatose state or potentially comatose, the key was to awaken it and focus on the neshama of it, relying that his students, till this day, would develop that and ultimately connect it with every other part of learning Torah. But it's a given of the scholarship that he had, both by his students and anyone that looks into it. Is there significance that the Baal Shem Tov used to go into the forest to daven and meditate? Can davening accomplish more than when done in a peaceful setting in nature than in a busy, noisy city? Yes, there's absolutely significance. Even if you're davening in a shul, a person is supposed to create space. That's why it says Chesidim Rishenim would spend time preparing themselves. Because if you're going to talk to God and emotionally connect, you need to create space. You can't be distracted. So going to a forest, obviously, is very conducive. And the same is for ourselves. So we have to find that space. That's the lesson in life, to find, to create the space, both psychologically, mind space, heart space, to be able to really focus when a person communicates. Just like when you want to have a conversation with someone that you love, you can't be distracted. You have to say eye to eye, let's talk, not be distracted, not be multitasking and focusing on what needs to be focused. The Alter Rebbe was declared to be a great sage. We're doing more chayel. The, the, the Alter Rebbe was declared to be a great sage. Created agricultural jobs for many. Became a magid. Started writing. Wrote a shulchan Established chesidus chabad. Established a yeshiva among other things. And then he turned thirty. Well, he established a yeshiva. The chadorim, I would say, to be accurate. Are rebbe's born or are they made? Can a simple person achieve the greatness of the level of a rebbe if they work hard enough, or do you have to be born with it? Well, you need both. Moshe Rabbeinu was born with it. 
God shows him. But then that doesn't mean that's enough. He has to work on it as well. So the simple answer is our Rebbe is born that way. Al-Tareb had a neshama chadasha, we're told. A new soul. That's by, decided by God, not by us. But still, the Al-Tareb toiled and worked hard to actualize it, to learn Torah. It's not automatic. It may come easier, but he has his hard work cut out for him as all the Rabbeim. That's the brief answer. And they are chosen. Shoslan b'chol David there, take God takes Sadiqim and he plants them into each generation because we're need, we, they are needed. We, that doesn't mean we don't have our work cut out for us. The rest of us have to do whatever we can do to actualize our faculties and reach our highest levels and then that from heaven God could also give a person on the Shem of a Tzaddik as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. What was the main teaching of the Baal Shem Tov? How did he revolutionize the practice of Judaism? What is something we can do to honor the Baal Shem Tov and his teachings? So I believe I answered that question. The main teachings, I explained the five main things. He revolutionized the practice of Judaism by introducing the importance of the soul in everything. It's not just important, not enough to be a mechanical Jew. And when you are mechanical, it could also be disconnected, a dissonance between your behavior and your personal refinement. You know, the concept of gamva pumachtate person could be a thief and pray to God to succeed. That's dissonance, cognitive dissonance. The Balshamta once showed his students that a person could eat shant on Shabbos and do everything, eat kosher, but not look kosher, look like an animal. So it's about creating an integrated Judaism, a Judaism that permeates and refines you. Many people can just do what God says to do, but they forget about God. They forget about other people. They can be very devout in their prayers and in their mitzvahs, but what about sensitivity, compassion, empathy? These are just some of the ways that Chassidus radicalized. Now the truth is, it was always meant to be that way. That's what Torah is meant to be, to be refinement. Hillel says, Zui kol the whole Torah is, don't do unto others that you don't want done to you. As I mentioned earlier. But to, to actually make that into a real system and then develop it as the Alter Rebbe did into a whole comprehensive system, that's the contributions. What can we do to honor the Baal Shem Tov? Chayel, on any day, more Avis Yisrael, a little more love, a little more sensitivity, thinking about it, month of El, not just doing tshuva, the sins or between Ben Adam Lemokim, between you and God, but also, but also making sure that it's Ben Adam Lechavere, that it affects and refines the person and how we interact with each other. Can you share three favorite life-changing lessons from the Tanya? Yeah. Lesson number one, let's do chapter uh, 12 in Tanya, where the Altar Rebbe says, that self-control, the mind controlling the heart, is inherent. It's a chiddush from Tanya. It's inherent. Why is it such a chiddush? Because if a person says, I'll just, my impulsive heart has temptations, but I acquired, I acquired in school and education, and my parent, and my parents taught me, my uh, school taught me how to um, control myself. 
So we know that something acquired can never be as powerful as something inherent. But if we say it's inherent in you, the ability to control yourself, because your mind inherently has power over your impulsive heart, your reflective mind has inherent power over your impulsive heart, then there's a real chance to succeed. More than a chance. Like he says there in chapter 12, it's like light automatically dispels darkness. Just to compare it, in a Freudian psychological system, the id, the id is the driving force. You can impose and superimpose the ego, the superego to control yourself, but it's always superimposed. The natural gravitation of a person is going to be to selfishness and to pleasure. Al-Tarebbe says, not the id, the yid, the pint of the yid, the spark is the essence. And that's inherent. Yes, we have also another side, an animal soul. But you have inherent in you that power of moyach shal ta'alev, the moyach, the nefesh that resides in the mind, that has the power of the reflective mind to control the emotion. That's one. Number two, I would say chapter 32 in Tanya. The secret to all love is transcendence, where spirit is stronger than matter. And the third thing, let's talk about Dira B'tachtein, chapter 36 and 37. That the purpose of existence is to transform this material world. That's why Neshama comes down below. Just Teda Mitzvahs itself, in Gan Eden, we can do a lot more Teda Mitzvahs, Mitzvahs, not, act, not active mitzvahs, not action-based mitzvahs, but Teda and Ava on a higher level. But to transform the material world, the soul comes down below, and the Alter explains how to spiritualize the material, especially through Tzedakah. Those are three that quickly jump out, but there are many more, obviously. Okay. So we covered Tezvavel, we covered Chayel. Let us now move to 9-11. I will say Lahavdil maybe because it's uh, 9-11, the year 2001. We're now in 2022, which would be 21 years ago. We all know the attack on the Twin Towers, as well as other attacks in the United States. So the question someone asks is, should we commemorate 9-11? And if, and if, 9/11, if yes, should we do it with the rest of the country on the English date? Or should we do it on the Hebrew date? And how should we commemorate it? So even though I don't like to speak about it in the same breath of what we spoke about Chayel and Tezvavel, but it is an event that happened in our lives, and based on the Baal Shem Tov's teaching that everything is divine providence, it, it affected people. People were killed tragically, Jews and non-Jews. And therefore it's something, as the words of the, the Rambam, when a catastrophe happens, it would be insensitive to ignore it. So there are many lessons we can learn from it. Commemorate it? No, I wouldn't necessarily com- compare it to a commemoration of a, of a Jewish holiday, but it's an event that happened, and if we can commemorate it to turn it into a force of good, where we recognize the forces that caused that damage, coming from radical terrorism and misplaced religion even, to learn how to be sensitive to each other, that God wants us to love each other, inspire each other, not to destroy each other, and those very people who talked in the name of Islam that said that these are infidels, the Western world, and we have to destroy them, should look to Abraham, their own grandfather, who said, no, we pray for infidels. He prayed for Saddam. And we look to inspire, we look to build. So 9-11 is used as a day of deeper commitment to what God wants of us, to being a good person, to build the Twin Towers in our lives. 
of justice and virtue, that's the way we commemorate that day. It happened to also be the third day of Slichus that year. Slichus is that morning, Slichus right before, coming right before Rosh Hashanah. So I remember writing articles then, today the world trembles, today the world is born. 9-11, the world trembled. So many ways as it prepares us for the birthday of the human race, and our mandate and our calling of the human race is to bring, build a world of goodness, of kindness and generosity. In contrast to any, God forbid, hurting another person. So 9-11 in that sense also serves as a wake-up call toward that. Okay. How should we react to the news that the Queen of England died? should we be sympathetic to the British people and console them for their loss or should we be brutally honest even if it hurts their feelings and say there's no monarch other than Hashem and although Queen Elizabeth may have won a purple robe and a crown and lived in a a lavish lifestyle and never worked a day in her life in reality, she was just a regular human and no different than the, re- different than the rest of us. Okay. Let's read another question. A note about this. A note is being passed around social media that a school principal from London visited New York and went into Yechidus with the Rebbe. The Rebbe asked her if she visited schools in New York and if they were similar to the schools in England. The woman said in England, the students show great derecheretz, great respect. The Rebbe said that's because there's a monarchy in England. Why would the Rebbe imply something positive about any monarchy, monarchy, especially the British monarchy, that wrought terror in the world for hundreds of years with their colonialism? And more specific to us, in 1290, the British monarch King Edward expelled all the Jews from England and seized all their property. We have never been paid reparations for this despicable anti-Semitic racist act. Are we forgetting about Clifford's Tower of York incident? Just back of those anti-Semitic events. The church prohibited usury, so therefore the Jews became moneylenders. After the king borrowed money from the Jewish bankers to finance a war, he decided instead of paying back the loan, it was easier to just kill the Jews. All the Jews of York were locked in the tower and it was set on fire. Because of this incident that was incited and carried out by the British monarchy, there has been a rabbinic takana for the past 800 years that we are not allowed to spend the night in York because of the tragedy that happened there. So is the Reb implying that monarchies are good because they scare the kids into behaving? Do your, do, do your homework on time? Do your homework on time or it's off with your head? Why would the Reb who's part, who's such a smart and honorable person take such a position? Okay. So I think this answers the question if you think about it in context. First of all, there's the concept of Malchus da'arakei, Malchus God did give the ability to bring Malchus on this earth to give us a little taste of what it means Melech Malcham Lachem HaKadosh Baruch That's why there's a Birchus HaMelech. You make a blessing when you see a king or a queen. Or well, a queen, there's a question, but same idea. The question is whether there's a king today with that type of authority. We know Queen Elizabeth did not have the power. It was much more symbolic. But still, there was that element of a monarchy. 
Even when the Tsar Nicholas was overthrown in the Russian Revolution, Chassidim cried because we lost a marshal in Chassidus, the marshal of the absolute authority of a king. But he was a Russian Marusha, a Tzayda Yehudim, he ate Jews, as did many of his, parent, of his predecessors. But that still doesn't take away from the fact that God has given power to Amelech. So we can learn a power. Pare was Amelech, Melech Mitzrayim. Look what he did to the Jewish people. Yet he had power. We know he had power, spiritual power. So anyone in a position of authority has the choice how they will use that position. But the position itself tells you there's something there. That's why you have monarchs that were very benevolent and beautiful people. So the fact that monarchs behave like animals and some in the worst possible way does not take away that a monarchy has something in it that can teach us about God. Especially when you talk about Ashgach HaPratis like the Baal Shem Tov teaches. The idea that this monarch has absolute power. He's unfortunately using it in the worst way, in an absolute corrupt way. That's why the Chassidim cried. So when we talk about Melech Malcham Lacham HaKadosh Baruch, Tam Lechuni Aleichem, crowning God as king, coronating God as king, so a monarch teaches something like that. Now, did the monarch, Queen Elizabeth, have particularly that type of authority? We know she didn't have that authority. But there was still a certain symbolism. So the Rebbe was saying, I'm, honestly, I can't verify the story, but if the story is true, the Rebbe is saying there's something to be learned from that. You learn the idea of Kabbalah sale. Now, we know George Washington did not want to be called King Washington for many reasons. The founding fathers saw the damages done by a king. But that doesn't mean there isn't value to be learned from it. So how do we react to the news of the Queen England? We look to the positive things that she represented. She did have a certain grace. She did bring a certain elegance to things. Whether it's significant in a fundamental way, the English people are more refined than everybody else. Not necessarily. But if she did contribute to a certain respect for life, and a certain dignity... That's something we can learn from. Does that mean that we worship? We worshiped it? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of it is very much sensationalism. You remember when, when Princess Diane got married? There's a lot of his pomp and circumstances. People like voyeurism. And nothing to do with anything of deeper content. So of course we can laugh at that and dismiss that superficial part. And I'm not uh, denying that. But we also, especially talking about Ashgach is look at is there something you can learn positive? And if there is... We derive it. That's what the Rebbe is saying. It's not justifying things that other people did. Queen Elizabeth actually did not take any Jewish heads. I'm not saying that she gets credit for that. But I mean to say to blame her because her predecessors did that is not the right thing to do. I know that some say that she oversaw the colonialism or at least part of it. Remember when she came to power, Britain was losing its real effect, control over the world. So a lot of it is symbolism. But it's a symbolism that, that we can learn some lessons from it. That's how I would look at it. Let's do everything, everything with moderation. You don't have to become extremely for it. You're not extremely against it. But there's lessons to be learned. Rebbe Rashab once said he doesn't like people who say Pshat and Tanya. But if it adds to Yerushalayim, he doesn't mind. Obviously, you can say the same thing here. If you can learn something about it, it lessens to us what a monarch is or what it should be. And we can learn from that lessons as Machus the Arakeh, Machus the Rakia. And that they just gave Melochim on earth a certain strength like that. Then, other than on the contrary, let us learn the lessons and honor that. 
And that is a nice and beautiful thing to do. We all understand the superficial part of it. And yes, the wealth and then the people love to just to talk about um, the royal family and their, and their gossip and all of that. Obviously, that goes feeds already into our lowest common denominator, which is not what I'm addressing at all. So it's a matter of doing to choose and pick instead of going to extremes. Yeah. Okay, now, let's see. With the time we have, what else can we cover? Let's just cover, I'll cover, what can we learn from the restaurant whose kosher certification was revoked? So we know, dear Rabbi Jacobson, as you may have heard this week, the kosher Chinese restaurant... Manalapan, New Jersey, which is not Jewish-owned, had its certification revoked and closed down with a statement coming from its certifying agency that those who have warm food from there in the last six months should kasha their personal utensils. I'm wondering if there's something we should take away from this. This is a community-wide issue and wider and wider than that, that, that and wider that affects the Frum community all over. Should we consider eating only at home? Secondly, how should we approach speaking about this issue publicly? I feel for the mashgiach and those involved in the restaurant. Like everything, Ashgach HaPratis again, quoting Baal Shem Tov, being it's the week of Chayel, everything is a lesson. When you see something like this, a matter, it, it, it awakens in you being more sensitive to what you eat and going out to eat and, and being more kosher. Absolutely, that's the, that's the most important lesson of all. Now, I know people who won't go to restaurants altogether, even with the best certifications. There's nothing like the kosher in your own home, which you can control and so on. As soon as it's commercial, even with great mashgichim, there's always possibility for problems. I'm not here to tell people not to go out to eat, or not to hire caterers, or not to uh, use these uh, certifications. We live in a world, and everybody has to make their choice. But the lessons to be learned about sensitivity, yes, it's not just about what you eat and how good the food is. It's also serving God and eating the right things with the right, with the right approach. I hope that these certifications will all be, the certification agencies will all become more vigilant. But we understand it's not something, it's not airtight. There's always possibility for cheating and lying and deceiving. And it's good to see that they are accountable. And, and, and once they caught it, they did, they did what they had to do. And the, this restaurant was ultimately closed as a result. So that's good to see. And the more, the higher the standards, the better. Other lessons to be learned is that we live in a world where people <laughs> do are duplicitous and will lie and sometimes for commercial reasons will do things and cut corners or worse. And we need to be very careful about it. Um, I, beyond that, these are the basic common sense lessons. And beyond that, we, like everything, we learn from it and hopefully become stronger in this area every person in their own level, what they feel is important to learn from it. Okay. Yes. Um, what, we'll, what we will conclude with, I'll conclude with this. In response to the question in your last week's episode, is there anything we can do in El about inflation and rising gas prices? Last year I was told about a sikha of the Rebbe regarding pledging a certain amount of tzedakah before Rosh Hashanah, which can dictate how much money you can make in the coming year. I don't know if I said that, I said that ex- exactly right, but I can tell you that every Rosh Hashanah last year, I just thought of a large amount to give to Tzedakah, and before I had a chance to talk it over with my wife, we saw tremendous blessings. Brachas. I've heard similar stories from family and friends. Can you please expound on this sikha 
and explain how it works. Although I know the bottom line to give Zdokeh, not sure the explanation behind it, where the Sikha is from. Thank you. On another note, maybe if people could share such stories of Zdokeh, charity, it will be Machazik, strengthen the, the Indian of charity, Shemekarev Sagula, which, which hastens the redemption. The Moises and Aniyam will receive more, and those that give will make lots more money. Okay. The Sikha that you're referring to most likely is Simchas Teda Tovshin Mem. 19, uh, that would be Tov Simchas Teda 1979. So the Rebbe did indeed say there, and quoting a story for the Fridika Rebbe, that the Fridika Rebbe once asked someone to don- donate and sponsor a project. And he didn't said he didn't have the money, so the Friedrich Rebbe said that if you make a commitment, God will open up new channels so you'll be able to fulfill your commitment and also make a lot more money. And the Rebbe then said very clearly, so without strings attached, people should do exactly that. Make a commitment, and even if it's beyond your capacity, God will open up new channels and you make more parnos. And that's, of course, based on betochen and trust in God and so on. So the answer is exactly right that that's what Zdokah has the power to do. Now, someone will say, well, I did that and it didn't work. Listen, God has his ways. Not everything that we, not everything that happens we understand, but we're still told. And the Rebbe said that unequivocally and unconditionally. And that's the bottom line. And you saw these brachas and many people see them. It's an attitude. Understanding, it's not about just making more money. It's understanding why you were given money. You're blessed with money to help others. So, of course, when you commit to help others, God will give you more money. That's the logic behind it. Now, some will say, So when it comes to Zdaka, even if you do it for alternative motives, to become wealthy or to, or to, uh, to heal a child, so God says, test me even on this. Based on that, essentially, the more sincere you are with it, the more likely it will be fulfilled. So it's a good way to conclude this episode of My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 418. We covered, I wanted to talk more, I wanted to talk about Kisove, the Pasha. Time is, is ultimately limits us. So I'm going to stop, I'm going to conclude here. I wish everybody, yes, we should add in especially in Zdoka, and God will no question allow you to fulfill all your commitments and more and bless you with abundance beyond your wildest imagination. Begashmis and Baruchnis, all in good health. This has been My Life, Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Go to chassidahsupplied.com where you can submit any question, as well as view all the archives and other resources around Chassidah. And the spirit of Chayel may the Yifutz of this program and all the work and activities that you and everyone is doing finally fulfill Mashiach's promise, Mashiach's, uh, Mashiach's com- commitment to Baal Shem Tov, that when your wellsprings will spread, I, Mashiach, will come in the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.